President Biden couldn't have been clearer this week. There is, he said, nothing domestically more important than voting rights. And yet, as with Build Back Better, his massive nearly $2 trillion social spending bill, there seems little prospect that a voting rights bill can pass before the end of the year, not so long as two Democrats, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, remain adamantly opposed to amending the Senate's filibuster rules that allow a minority of members to block passage of just about anything. Nobody has been in the middle of the fight for voting rights and much else on the Democratic agenda than Dick Durbin of Illinois. As majority whip, he's the number two Democrat in the Senate, and he's chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where he's vigorously pushed voting rights legislation that would push back on laws being passed by Republican-controlled legislatures that Democrats fear could make it harder for some voters to cast their ballots. Durbin has also been overseeing a critical investigation by his committee into the pressure President Trump and his allies were putting on the Justice Department to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We'll talk to him about where that investigation stands and where his party's agenda sits on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, it's been interesting as it's become increasingly clear over the last few days that Build Back Better was not going to make it, at least not by Schumer's uh, imposed deadline of uh, before Christmas. The Democrats and the White House have pivoted to voting rights. They think this is uh, what their base, what their voters care about more. This, uh, what's been passing in some of these Republican-controlled legislatures, do represent a threat, as they see it, to uh, voting for a lot of people. And so they're pushing that now as the number one item they want to see, the White House wants to see passed. But, you know, look, they're running into the same problem they had with Build Back Better. Cinema and Manchin are not on board with changing the filibuster rules. It's hard to see how anything can pass on voting rights, on Build Back Better, without Cinema and Manchin on board. And, you know, kicking it to January to next year, I don't see how that's going to change anything. Yeah, there was this little boomlet of uh, optimism this week uh, that, for reasons that I, I really don't understand, that they might be able to do uh, voting rights. I think behind the scenes, Manchin, I think the thinking was that Manchin uh, might be willing to compromise, at least on the fringes on the filibuster, some, you know, go for a talking filibuster or something along those lines. But Kirsten Cinema uh, just put the kibosh on that uh, completely, and uh, it does not seem like it ha- really has um, any chance at all. I mean, look, <laughs> this is the legislative process. Uh, Victoria knows uh, better than you and I uh, do that it's um, grinds along, and there are dynamics that that we can't necessarily see on the outside, um, and something could happen early in, in the next session that could at least get uh, yeah, the bill yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, Something, okay. maybe no, no, something no, no, will no. turn up. It's always darkest change. before the dawn. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, but but we've seen this 
you know, happy movie talk. many happy times talk. before. Yeah, no, that's me. I'm happy talk, they, and you're doom and gloom. <laughs> right. I mean, there you go. Like we just, yeah, I'd say we, I have the better right now uh-huh. of the argument. <laughs> right in the moment. <laughs> yeah, right. we'll see what happens. How no, it plays out. No, it's not out. in the moment. This has been going on. First of all, the Bill Backpander stuff goes back to the summer when you know Mansion. We only learned it months later, sent a letter to Schumer saying, look, here's where I stand. I don't go along with a lot of this. I don't want anything more than $1.5 trillion, which was a lot less than the House passed and what the Senate wanted to pass, uh, the Senate Democrats wanted to pass. And he also said he didn't go along with a lot of the particulars that were in the bill, including the social spending stuff. He wants mean testing. Uh, he wants formulas so that not everybody gets it. And his all position right, has hasn't changed. I'm going to go with the. Mystery. I'm going to go with the Woody Hayes uh, school of legislation. It's three yards and a cloud of dust. Although it may be not actually three <laughs> yards, it may yeah, be less than one yard and yeah. a cloud of dust. Just but, a lot uh, of cloud of dust. Okay, so the notable difference between Build Back Better and the Freedom to Vote Act or the voting rights legislation that's you know kind of still trying to make its way through the Senate, and this is an important difference is. Manchin actually supports the Freedom to Vote Act. He's a co-author and co-sponsor of the legislation. So at least substantively, he's on board with it. But as you point out, it's a piece of legislation that at least twice so far this year has crashed headlong into the filibuster wall and failed. So unless Manchin agrees to some sort of modification to the filibuster rule and cinema, and and there's some other senators probably sitting kind of hiding behind cinema and mansion who also are skeptical about changing. I hear the what you're saying, rule. Victoria, but because of cinema and because of the opposition to the filibuster, I actually think Bill Back Better has a slightly better chance in the new year than voting reform. It but would we'll be see. A pretty slim down Build Back Better. Yeah, I would that's say. true. Yeah. Well, it already is. I mean, but it is fair to say that amongst kind of the Democratic elite, you know, like the inside Democratic Washington Beltway elite, the rising sense of panic about the democracy issues. I think that there are a lot of people now who think that that's even better, that's even more important than Build Back Better. Yeah. And they will use the January 6th revelations and all of the attention on on what happened to build support any anything uh, that might help save uh, this ailing democracy I have a slightly more cynical take. Uh, what? Surprise, surprise. surprise Shock. You. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they realize that Build Back Better politically is not flying right now because with inflation being the number one item that voters are caring about, uh, spending a whole bunch of, you know, trillions of dollars more, two trillion, it doesn't seem like it's going to cut it and it's not going to address that which voters care most about. I think that for their base, for the Democratic base, voting rights, you know, rings. Uh, it's something that has traction. So politically, if they could stop talking about Build Back Better and talk about voting rights, even if it doesn't pass, at least they're addressing something that their base cares about. Yeah, the base seems to really care about the voting rights law, although I want to caution, one other caution about it, which is that even if they keep talking about it, even if they do ultimately pass it, it's almost immediately going to be subject to massive litigation and implementation of that Freedom to Vote Act is likely to be delayed as a result of a a snarl of court cases. 
And let me just ask one more beat on the filibuster issue, because I know that's what Democrats really, really want right now. If Republicans get back control of the Senate in next November, what do you think Mitch McConnell is going to do with uh, filibuster rules having changed? Anything Mike, Democrats are 100% convinced that regardless whether or not Democrats change the filibuster rule this time, when Mitch McConnell takes control of the Senate, potentially in 2023, he'll change the filibuster rules himself. Yeah, maybe, but he won't have to take the heat for it because the Democrats will have already done it. Mitch, and he Mitch McConnell doesn't care about taking the, the heat for things. Mitch well, McConnell doesn't care about taking yeah, the heat for things. He'll just yeah. he'll just change the filibuster rules and do what he wants to do. Yeah. You know, um, yes, which you're right. means anything you're right, they pass make it, now can yeah. be like reversed. You know, once the Republicans get back in charge, well, um, Biden yeah. will still have the veto pen for at least yeah. you know two years or something like that. So there's a, there's always you know there's always something. But I, I think that that. The, one of the things that's driving Democrats to potentially change the filibuster rules is their their complete certainty that no matter what, in 2023, if it benefits the Republicans and Mitch McConnell, that they'll get rid of it anyway. So Maybe. But we, we mentioned uh, briefly uh, the January 6th stuff, which is driving a lot of the voting rights and, you know, concern about future of democracy talk. And um, we did learn quite a bit just in the last few days. I mean, Liz Cheney did that sort of amazing recitation of all the texts that Mark Meadows was getting from a whole bunch of people, including Fox News luminaries, pleading with him to get the president of the United States to call off the mob, which he didn't do for several hours. The House seems poised now. The committee has already voted to file contempt charges against Meadows. But this strikes me as a much more difficult case for the Justice Department than Steve Bannon was. I think... It is a more difficult case, and I also think it's worth pausing not and realizing that not just Met, the Meadows contempt issue, but that the January 6th committee right now is rapidly becoming a full employment act for lawyers suing it to stop it from issuing subpoenas, because not only have you got Meadows digging in his heels and refusing to testify, Bannon doing the same, and ongoing litigation about that, you've got John Eastman you know, warning, caveat, I, I worked on a complaint against John Eastman, but you do have John Eastman suing the committee. You've got Trump suing the National Archives to stop the committee from getting his records. You've got a photojournalist also suing the committee, trying to keep them from getting copies of some of the photos that she took on January 6th. So it is rapidly becoming a tangle of litigation. And one really does wonder where this committee is going. And let's just for a moment explain why the Meadows case is more complicated for Merrick Garland's Justice Department. In the Bannon case, uh, it was pretty clear cut. Bannon, first of all, you have a president asserting, an ex-president asserting a a privilege on behalf of someone who hadn't worked in the White House for years uh, before what happened on January 6th. Uh, In this particular case, you have someone who was the current White House chief of staff at that time, the current president, and the chief of staff occupies a particularly uh, unique position as the gatekeeper for the president of the most important relationship in some ways between a president and a staffer. And so he's going to have a much stronger 
argument on executive privilege, and there's a lot more precedent. The Justice Department has historically, in recent history anyway, been very reluctant to prosecute chiefs of staff or people at that level who are actually operating in the White House at the time. And there, we all remember uh, the uh, U.S. attorney scandal at the end of the uh, Bush administration. I'm not sure how many people actually remember we the all, U.S. I attorney scandal. We all. I mean, Victoria, scandal. you and we me. Do, yes. And my guess is uh, <laughs> right. that the, uh, not a, a significant number of our skullduggery listeners who are politics nerds will remember it uh, as well. But in, in that particular case, you had... Josh uh, Bolton, who was the White House chief of staff, and Harriet Myers, who was the uh, general counsel, right. all subpoenaed and then um, held in contempt, and the, and the Justice Department did not uh, prosecute those cases. Although they did ultimately get forced to turn over a lot of the documents. So so can I just add this? one? There's one wrinkle vis-a-vis Meadows that may make a prosecution slightly not easier, but not as difficult as, as Danny suggested, and that is that Meadows potentially already waived a lot of these claims because before he changed his mind, he turned over a substantial amount of documents and emails to the committee. So the committee might have an argument to make that he waived the privilege and doesn't have the the ability to kind of claw it back. George Terwilliger, his lawyer, who former deputy attorney general, made it clear that what he was turning over was non-privileged material. Texts, emails from, not from his boss, the president, who didn't use email anyway, but from outsiders, people who were not in the um, uh, in the White House inner circle. Uh, that is a distinction. You can right. cooperate on non-privileged matters, but when it comes to his communications with the president, that's a different matter. I do think this, and I'll be interested in what you think about this, but the Supreme Court is really crucial here because the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia has ruled on this issue that the former president does not have a privileged claim when the incumbent president has already determined that privilege does not, that has already waived that privilege, and Biden has. So on the merits of the claim itself, as the law stands today, Meadows doesn't have a case. But Trump is appealing that ruling to the Supreme Court. They've got it. The court has to sort of decide one way or the other to intervene, whether it's going to take up the case, I think, by next week, if I'm not correct. They had 14 days, right? Are you sure that's the Meadows case or is that... that no, 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 no. That's no. the, that's the, the National Trump Archives case. case. That's, yeah. that, that is the Trump case. Right. But if the Supreme Court doesn't take it up, then the standing court of appeals ruling is that's that right. there's no privilege right. here. Basically, what happened is the D.C. The DC Circuit issued an administrative stay of their decision for 14 days. Right. So it's not that the Supreme Court has to take it up in 14 days, but if they don't take it up in 14 days, then the National the Archives begins turning over the material. Over and Meadows, yeah. you know, until the Supreme Court does, yeah. Meadows doesn't have a privilege right, claim. Right. But by the way, the, you know, the Supreme Court could decline to not, could not decide whether or not it's going to take up the case, but issue a stay you know, which they do all the time. It cl- kind of classic shadow docket move. But on the on the substance, well, first of all, it sounds to me like they're not going to, this, this is on a kind of a fast track, that Trump's lawyers are actually not appealing for an en banc hearing, that it's going to go straight to the Supreme Court and then wait to see whether the Supreme Court 
uh, takes the case. You know, I, I have I've talked to a couple of lawyers recently, and it sounds to me like they they are not going to take this case, um, or or a really? significant chance that they that they won't take it, and that this and the D.C. Circuit. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what Victoria has to say about this. But, you know, typically, like, they don't want to get in the middle of, you know, if they can avoid it, of, um, you know, disputes between the branches. In this particular case, there actually isn't a dispute. Be- I mean, the two elected branches are in agreement on this, right? Uh, so why create a problem that they don't really need? Yes, you have a former president, but it just seems like uh, this is one that uh, they just don't are not going to want to get in the middle of. Yeah, makes sense to me. But I like it's it's, you know, kind of uh, Supreme Court criminology. Who knows what they're going to yeah, end up doing, right. you know, what yeah. we'll get if um, the Supreme Court does not take the case is Meadows and everybody else pleading the fifth and saying they can't talk. And that presents, as we've discussed before, even bigger problems for the committee because they either have to immunize. He'll still have to turn over the documents. He may not have to testify, but they'll be, he'll be forced yeah, to turn over the documents. Yeah, that's true. Well, look, so. we've got a lot to talk to uh, Senator Durbin about, including our, um, uh, we did a whole episode last week on the future of Guantanamo, something we all have uh, worked on for many years. And uh, Durbin held the hearing on Guantanamo, uh, where nobody from the Biden administration even showed up. We're going to ask him about that and lots more. So wait, not yet. Let's not get to it yet. Oh. We have to do a little quick disclosure, which is all we do interest- is disclose is because you've had such a. Um, <laughs> illustrious <laughs> career. You've done so many things. We spend all our time just disclosing, disclosing. your conflicts of interest. Victoria. So in the interest of full disclosure, <laughs> I used to be uh, Dick Durbin's chief counsel low lo- these many years ago. All right. <laughs> I still ask him. So I'm still going to ask him tough questions. I'm going to say I want to hear <laughs> adversarial questions from you <laughs> to your former boss. It's not often right. I get to ask my former right. boss tough questions. Usually it was the other way around. Yeah. All right. Let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, the Senate Democratic Majority Whip and the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery. Good to be here. A lot, uh, obviously, going on up there on Capitol Hill uh, right now. But we wanted to start out with Guantanamo, a subject of longstanding interest to us. You had a hearing last week as part of your many, many years effort to try to shut Guantanamo down. Nobody from the Biden administration even showed up for your hearing. Um, Who did you invite? What explanation did they give you for not showing up? And what are you going to do the next time to make sure they do? Well, I I won't go into any conversations I've had with the Biden administration, but they knew that they were welcome. And I believe that they're an integral part of any decision on the future of Guantanamo. I am drawing a conclusion, which may or may not be accurate, that they haven't made a final decision on how to handle it. I think they are struggling with the same thing that many presidents have struggled with. Uh, Of the 39 detainees there, a dozen or so are ready for release, but nobody wants them. It's one of these situations where they go through elaborate bargain making uh, with these countries, large and small, to try to get them to accept a detainee. That's all I can assume because I don't have any direct evidence. 
but they are welcome and they are an integral part of any final uh, resolution. Quick follow up on on this, Senator, because well, to start with, I, I was doing a little research and I was actually trying to find a story about your hearing, your recent hearing. But what came up? A story that I actually wrote from 2013 in the Daily Beast, and I'm just going to read you the uh, one sentence from it. And it was notable that no member of the Obama administration, which is largely responsible for developing a plan of action on Gitmo, testified at the hearing. And then in parentheses, says, a Durban aide said the administration was invited but declined to send a witness. That was 2013. So it just raises the question that I've had all these years, and I'm sure you have also. Why has this problem at the end of the day been so insoluble for so long? And isn't it really about a lack of political will? It is political will, but it also is a complicated situation in this regard. You have some that uh, have been held for 20 years and never charged with any crime. You have some where there is evidence that they were guilty of the world's worst crimes, but they were tortured while they were being held by the United States, so the likelihood of prosecuting them is diminished. There are extraordinary circumstances here in these cases. I get it. But, you know, what are we waiting for? One detainee to finally die? You know, I think there was some novel I read as a kid about the last person alive on a certain island. And, you know, I think it re has reached the point now where we have a brigadier general in the Marine Corps who steps up in charge of military commissions and says to us under oath, this experiment has failed. Military com commissions have failed, he says 20 years after the fact. Well, we've known that they failed because only one person's ever been successfully prosecuted under them, and many others uh, have fallen apart when they tried to make the case. Uh, then we have another retired general from the Marine Corps testifies under oath that he created Guantanamo, and it's time to close it. It's doing more harm than good. I listened to the Republican side of the table, and their comment is, wait a minute, you have 39 people there? What if you release them and one of them reverts to terrorism? That's their argument. And when it gets down to it, you have to say, well, President Bush, George W. Bush, released over 500 of these detainees and Obama 150 or so. So they've been released over a period of time and some have returned to the fight, I'm sorry to say. Some are in the cabinet, if that's what you want to call it, of the Taliban in Afghanistan. But you know, the fact of the matter is, if we don't have a charge that we can press against them and prove, then what are we what are we trying to establish by continuing to hold it? Senator, switching gears, no uh, political spin here, no happy talk. It does not look like you're going to get Build Back Better before Christmas, correct? Correct. And there are practical reasons for that and political reasons for that. The practical reasons are we have a sad, heartbreaking situation where the person who is the gatekeeper of the contents of the bill, the Senate parliamentarian, is battling breast cancer. And she had to take today and tomorrow off for chemotherapy. And these are not casual experiences. They're very serious and very painful. God bless her for continuing on. But, you know, we're human, too, and we're doing our best to give her the time to get back on her feet. That's one of the practical issues involved. On the political side, the fact is we do not have an agreement with uh, Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin, even to say, well, here is the parameters of the agreement. Let's take it to the parliamentarian and see if it works. We're not at that stage after months of negotiation. 
And uh, as a consequence, the notion of doing it all next week is uh, not necessarily possible. So let me just follow up on that, because you, I think, this morning uh, indicated you were surprised and you know upset to learn that Senator Manchin will not even go along with an extension of the child tax credit, which is about to expire at the end of this month, uh, which means people that have been relying on checks from the federal government uh, are not going to get them. But I want to take you back to last July. Senator Manchin sends a letter to Senator Schumer laying out where he stands on this. He made it clear, top line, $1.5 trillion. As for spending conditions, family and health, needs based with means, testing, guardrails, formulas on new spending. He was clear from the get-go that he did not go along with child tax credit as it was crafted in Build Back Better. Why didn't you all sit down with him back then and hammer out something that could pass rather than we get to the last days before Christmas and everybody's scrambling and you discover, guess what, Senator Manchin isn't going to go along? I don't know who's to blame, but I can tell you it wasn't for lack of effort on either side. Manchin has been negotiating. Schumer and uh, Pelosi and others have been, and the president, have been on the other side of the table. The conversation's gone on. I said, you know, they said, well, the press said, maybe the pre- president should have tried a little harder. And I said, you know, the president turned over the Lincoln bedroom to him. He gave him his dedicated parking space. He's a regular at the, at the White House mess. I mean, it isn't for lack of effort on anyone's part, but we have not reached that level of agreement. And uh, I will tell you at this point, it, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to cut off that child assistance for a lot of the Democrats. They think that's worth fighting for. And I happen to agree with them. But what do you do about it? I mean, Senator Manchin hasn't moved. He hasn't budged since last summer. He's made his position clear. Kicking it to January isn't going to change his mind. What do you do? Well, hope springs eternal to see if there is any possible compromise that brings us closer together. There are so many, I think there are 400,000 of these kids in his home state of West Virginia. And Joe's position seems to be, I hope I'm not misstating it, is that it's not a tax credit because money is going to families that pay no taxes. It's a refundable tax credit, as we call it. But the argument back to Joe is that means they're making so little money that they don't pay taxes. Shouldn't they be getting helping him with their kids more than anybody? I think that's a pretty compelling argument, but uh, we're still working on convincing them. With Build Back Better faltering, the Senate is set to turn to voting rights issues. Yet, Voting rights has faltered, at least with multiple cloture votes failing. Is the Democratic caucus ready to change the filibuster so that it really can move ahead with the voting rights bill? Well, it's a good question, Victoria. The three senators, uh, Senator uh, Angus King and Tim Kaine and John Tester, who've been engaged day after day and week after week in potential change in the approach to the filibuster, the so-called talking filibuster, where you basically cannot mail in your opposition to a bill and go home for the weekend. If you want to stop a bill with the filibuster on the floor and get prepared to stand at your desk and make your, make your case, and you better have some people backing you up, uh, one person's not enough. I don't think that's unreasonable. We've got to do something to make the filibuster at least have a, a price to it, and we don't today. But the question is whether or not Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema agree with that change. 
So we're kind of stuck in the same mode when it comes to voting. I hope they are. Go ahead. It's a familiar duo, yet the, uh, there, there are other senators who have similarly expressed concerns about getting rid of the filibuster. Is it Cinema and Manchin who are the only roadblocks, or are there other people that you need to be concerned about? They're the major roadblocks. Uh, there are misgivings by other senators, but I think we can work with them. The idea is to keep the filibuster, but to put teeth in it. The talking filibuster doesn't give you a weekend off. You're going to stick around on the floor of the Senate if it's that important to you. And you remember having worked in the Senate, filibusters used to be rare. Closure votes were rare. Now it's 60 votes for everything. You wake up in the morning and say, Pledge of Allegiance? Well, I demand 60 votes before we have a Pledge of Allegiance. I'm making light of it. But it's almost that bad. Do you think that the White House is, has shown enough urgency on, on this issue? I mean, I know there are a lot of people and a lot of Democrats who believe that it may be the most pressing issue because at the end of the day, our our system of, of democratic government is at stake. Has Joe Biden dealt with this issue with the kind of urgency it, it deserves? He couldn't be more definitive in his statement that he made the other day. And he said many things before. And what I'm sure is weighing on him and all of us is the actions that are being taken by state legislatures around, around the nation. They are doing everything in their power to limit opportunities to vote. The opposite of what I think you should be encouraging in a democracy. And in the belief that a larger electorate is not friendly to the Republican Party. It's just very basic. I think the president does take it seriously. We all do. One really quick follow-up to that, which is, if you don't get this done, get this uh, bill passed in this session or the next, which seems like certainly a possibility, what does American democracy look like five years from now? I mean, what, what keeps you up at night? That, uh, the fact that we now have such uh, a division in this country and people are now have sources of information of their own, their favorite sources, and some of them are not factual uh, in terms of the information that they're providing. The violence that is now part of American politics, you see it on the floor of the House of Representatives, and you see it across the country. But will it, will it still be the same democracy that all of us grew up in? It's going through a transition, and I hope uh, one that returns us to what we remember from years gone by. But it is a challenge uh, that is very real and very serious. I see it in the Senate. Uh, I certainly see it in the House of Representatives. And the electorate now is stratified and calcified and very, very difficult to uh, see moving toward a centrist position on many things. Danny asked you about five years from now. I want to ask you about one year from now, 2022. Um, as of now, uh, you're not going to get Build Back Better. You're not going to get voting rights. Uh, you're not going to get immigration reform. You haven't gotten police reform. What are you going to say to Democratic voters when you go home? And what is this going to do to your party's chances in the 2022 midterms? Well, when it came time for the Democrats to vote with no help from the Republicans, they passed the American Rescue Plan which uh, helped businesses stay open and reopen, which created a distribution of vaccines across America. Uh, I think and many other good things for our economy. I think it was quite an achievement. When it came time to deal with anything that involved uh, Republican support, we're on our own. Uh, reconciliation is a classic example of that. Not one Republican for one issue will step up. They give glorious speeches about Reducing the cost of insulin for 8 million American diabetics. Good. Are you going to be with us on reducing that? No, no, we're not going to give you a vote. When you take a look at the uh, infrastructure bill, 
that passed the House of Representatives. How many Republicans voted for it? 13, one out of Illinois. How many are going to be standing with their hard hats and, and big smiles and shovels in their hands when we start turning uh, the earth for these projects? All of them, every single one of them to take credit for it. We got to point that out. But the Democrats have produced when it came to rescue plan and infrastructure, and the Republicans have stopped us every step they can. We're going through nominations now. I think there are 150 sitting on the calendar, unprecedented numbers, no cooperation, not even as much as we were giving Trump when he was president. They just don't think twice about it. I think that's an important part of the message. So turning to another issue regarding kind of the future of our democracy thus far, and that's investigating what happened during January 6th and possibly preventing another January 6th. Thus far, the House committee has held one hearing. Your committee has issued one interim report. Are we going to see real accountability for and and an understanding of January 6th and who was responsible for it? Well, it, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with these subpoenas. You know, I, I heard some someone predict, well, Steve Bannon's case is going to come up in July of this next year. Well, you can tell that the calendar is running out for the June 6th committee. I think they come up with good information. Meadows' uh, emails sure opened our eyes as to the traffic in emails on January 6th, even to Fox News. But uh, I think there'll be more accountability as we continue with the investigation we're not going to get down to a level of uh, understanding as long as they resist all of the subpoenas and any level of cooperation. So there's a real chance they're going to run out the clock. That's what they're trying to do. It's clear. What's going on with your uh, investigation? You, re- you released the inner report on the pressure that Trump, Meadows, and others were putting on the Justice Department. That was uh, more than two months ago now. Where uh, we were expecting a final report, I understand you're still waiting on getting something from the National Archives. Where do things yes. stand and what's the holdup? The holdup is the Senate rules and the Senate Judiciary Committee. In order to issue any subpoena, we need a bipartisan vote. We need a Republican judge. And naturally, there's not one coming forward for information on the January 6th event. So the information we've provided so far has been done voluntarily. Uh, and the archives said they needed some time. So we are waiting patiently, but there will be a final report if they issue the documents we've asked for. You said when you released the interim report that you were waiting to decide whether you think there are criminal referrals to the Justice Department that needed to be made here. You know, we've learned a lot more since that, you know, from these Meadows texts and other material. Do you want to see the Justice Department opening up a more uh, vigorous, expansive criminal investigation into people in Trump world who were involved in January 6th? Yes. And it's because of this. I think what happened on January 6th, and I was present for what happened, Uh, was more than just a political escapade gone bad. It was a crime. And the fact that hundreds of Americans have been charged with specific crimes, uh, some already sent to prison for it, is an indication of how seriously the Department of Justice has been taking this. I was told at one point by Merrick Garland it was the largest criminal investigation in their history in terms of the hundreds and hundreds of people who were subjected to it. It needs to be treated that way and thought of that way. Despite... Fox dismissing it as just a political retribution for the January 6th committee hearing. It's much more than that. Uh, And I think we ought to get to the bottom of it and understand who financed it, 
who conceived of the notion, he executed it, and what was going on in the White House while this took place. And you want Merrick Garland to be doing that as attorney general in a criminal investigation? Well, I can see it leading to that. At this point, I think the January 6th committee in the House is the right place to be. One more important area we need to ask you about. Um, the Supreme Court is uh, considering the Mississippi case. A lot of expectation that it may well overturn Roe versus Wade, if not, if not explicitly, then implicitly. And we have a Supreme Court commission that threw out a bunch of options, including expanding the court and um, term limits. If the Supreme Court does what many people expected to do. Do you want to see changes in the makeup of the Supreme Court? I would rule it out. I think the commission came would not rule it out. That's right. And I might remind people that uh, it wasn't until fairly recently that the number nine became the agreed upon number in the Supreme Court. It's not the Constitution. Uh, and it is a matter of evolution as to the number of Supreme Court justices. So it is not a magical number. It's not a constitutional number. I would rule out considering options. But I want to make one point very clear to you. There's only one member of the United States Senate who has ever changed the number and composition of the Supreme Court. His name is Mitch McConnell. And he decided he would keep a vacancy on that court for almost one calendar year so that there would only be eight Supreme Court justices and he could wait and pray every night that the Republican would be elected president. Trump was the answer to his prayers. So if we're talking about the sanctity of the composition of the court, that sanctity wasn't with a plug nickel when it came to McConnell's agenda. Okay, but just to be clear, if the court overturns Roe, will you, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, move to change the makeup of the Supreme Court? Well, let's take it a step at a time. And you're asking me to project in the future. I don't know. I'm not hopeful, but I, I hope I'm wrong on the future of Roe versus Wade with this court. Uh, and then, of course, the decision is going to have to be made as to whether or not there should be an approach changing the composition or term limits or that nature. It is in the providence, uh, in the providence of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And yes, I would consider a hearing on that issue. And one final related question. Should the court overturn uh, Roe versus Wade, do you or would you support federal legislation codifying Roe? I'm a co-sponsor. And, and the reason is there are so many issues and this issue is so divisive. Roe versus Wade at least kept us all moving toward the center stripe on this issue for uh, almost 50 years. And I've not seen a better alternative. That's the situation in Texas with their vigilante approach I had a hearing on that. It was curious. The two Texas senators who sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee spent no time defending their state statute. They were basically criticizing me for having a hearing instead of defending it. And secondly, when it comes to this Mississippi decision, I think we all know what they're setting out to do. They want to establish state standards that override Roe versus Wade. Uh, and that, to me, is the beginning of the end of that constitutional protection. But, Senator, in a 50-50 Senate, can you get it passed? Can you get no. anything like this passed? No. And the question, obviously, is to whether it's gun safety or constitutional changes. If you can't pass it, should you talk about it? I think I owe it to the American people to do just that as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to bring these issues in and, in some cases, go to a markup and put people on the record. I wish I could do more. Well, Senator, we want to uh, thank you. Uh, 
we want to give you the opportunity to talk about these things anytime you would like. Uh, so you have a standing invitation, but we really appreciate your time today. Well, I never turned down a chance for skullduggery. <laughs> We're going to use that as a pull quote for our pod. Never turn down a chance. All right. Thanks a lot, Senator. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to see you, Senator. Senator.